Hello, and welcome to the 18th episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Wand. As many of you know, we are going through a pandemic at the moment, and with that goes our access to the studio. So we are making the most of our social distancing requirements and have created a studio at home. I'm joined today by Adrian Sneed, associate lawyer at Holland and Knight in Washington, D.C., to discuss the confusing world of cannabis law in America. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Anne. It's really nice to hear your voice again. It's been, I can't believe, almost two decades since we met. Um, I know, we were kitties together, weren't we? Just little babies. Uh, <laughs> just little pre-9/11. babies. <laughs> we met pre-9-11. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that in a second. Um, gosh, shoot. Well, let's just skip the normal trajectory by having you tell us, we could tell us what drink you're having, followed by a little bit about yourself. You know, I'm just having some organic coffee that I made here at home. I, uh, I since lockdown, I have um, had to drink plenty of coffee, but I've uh, I started with going to all the local coffee shops and giving them business for a while. Uh, but uh, with work interests and concerns, I just decided to finally invest in a very nice coffee maker, which I got, and it makes very good coffee. Um, so Ooh, I get nice. my latte or my cappuccino. About once or twice a week now instead of just, just getting some drip stuff. Yeah, so. Well, you know, the listeners don't know. Uh, we used to be, I guess you could say housemates. Um, That's right. Yeah, so we did the study abroad program. We were students at Pepperdine University and we lived in Florence. And hmm. people probably, I'm, I'm guessing your colleagues, they may or may not know this about you, that you are very good at martial arts. I remember you doing a backflip on a student trip, and I was like, wow, he can flip. <laughs> Look at him flipping. <laughs> might kick. be a little embellishment, but yeah, I'll take it. Yeah. Uh, that was, yeah. There might have been life. tape. There might have been yeah. videotape. Yeah. Yeah, no. Um, I, it's, 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 it's on my LinkedIn, I think. <laughs> yeah, it is on your LinkedIn, and we'll, and we'll make sure to, to CC people into that. Um, but. Right. I, I think what we should do is kind of just dive right in because uh, one thing we talked about before we started the recording is that this topic uh, about the you know world of cannabis is, is quite controversial and we'll get into that in a, in a bit. But one of the things that I noticed when I told some relatives that I was going to be talking about the cannabis industry is that they, they kind of panicked and said, you know, you need to make it very clear that you don't do drugs and I, I, said, I, don't, I don't think that that's really um, what I'm trying to get across here is to do drugs. But there is definitely this assumption that if you're going to talk about drug usage, that you must be a user. And those are two very, very different things. Um, and so I'd be very curious to know your opinion about, you know, this whole industry and, you know, sort of the things that you've come across every time you've mentioned that you work or interested in, in looking at um, the cannabis industry from a legal perspective? Yeah, so I will, let me let me step it back a little bit because that has evolved and, and I'm not surprised your, your family members did that. And that's part of the array of issues with this industry is a, is a bad historical um, context that it's been set in. And uh, there's all kinds of jokes. We make them as lawyers in the industry all the time. It's growing like a weed, it's, you know, really cheesy dad <laughs> jokes, but you get it. Um, yeah, yeah. And it, it tends to be an age thing is what we found. And, you know, I got thrown into this uh, industry when I was a staffer 
for a United States Senator and I was his counsel and foreign policy advisor and he happened to be from Oregon and the year he was, uh, the year I started working for him, he was up for re-election and got asked during a debate whether he would support uh, Oregon's ballot measure to legalize marijuana and to the best of my knowledge, he hadn't been prepared for that and he off the cuff said, yeah, I'm going to support it. And we became, the media jumped on that, and especially the industry media, and said, oh, the first United States senator to say to legalize pot. And well, so we, jump. yeah, and, and so we, um, we took it and we decided to run with it. The House of Representatives had had uh, a number of members um, uh, in, in their cannabis caucus that had been pushing for legalization for some time and had begun introducing bills and uh, it fell to me, more or less, to figure out what we were going to do in our office on this. And after meetings with the chief of staff and the legislative director and the senator, we decided to take the lead. And we organized uh, what has become the Senate Staff Working Group on Marijuana Reform, which is kind of the corollary to the House Caucus. Um, and we started writing bills, among other ones, the safe, what is now called the Safe Banking Act, it used to be the uh, Marijuana Businesses Access to Banking Act of 2015 and then morphed into the Safe Banking Act of 2017 and now Safe Banking Act of 2019. And uh, we did several other things. We, my, my boss sat on the Appropriations Committee and while there's a lot of bad press about Congress, uh, a lot of it deserved, a lot of it undeserved. Uh, the idea that nothing gets done in Congress is untrue. There still is quite a bit that gets done, and those who are appropriators have the ability to get more done than others because you have to pass some kind of spending bill. And when you do that, you can attach all kinds of policy riders. And so we were successful, at least in the Senate, in passing the first uh, pieces of legislation um, ever passed by the United States Senate on marijuana reform. Now, unfortunately... Uh, two of the three pieces that were passed never made it into a final bill, but one did. Um, and so it's been, it, it was quite a ride, but that also introduced me to the varied politics. You saw the younger members, both Republican and Democrat, generally okay with this. When I say younger members, I mean, people that grew up in the 60s and 70s. And, and even the ones, even now you have members that grew up in the 80s and they tend to be almost uniformly uh, for cannabis reform. And you had older members who didn't understand it and had a very bad connotation, but the politics moved so fast that I remember one vote we had in the Appropriations Committee, Lindsey Graham, who's a senator from South Carolina, very conservative, uh, actually changed his vote. He had voted against the measure, but when he saw the measure was going to pass, he changed the vote to vote for it. Wow. So um, it's, it's, it's a, it, an ever-evolving um, business. It's an ever-evolving industry, and certainly its public uh, reception is also ever-evolving. See, so this is interesting you say that, and um, because I remember, so I grew up uh, near the CIA, or as the Italians like to call it, La Chia, and <laughs> I, I went to Langley High School, so Langley, you know, it's kind mm -hmm. of right next door. Um, but yeah, basically, I remember uh, it, this was so this would have been late 90s and my government teacher had decided to do a mock trial on the legalization of cannabis for medical reasons. And there were, I think, two individuals, one woman in particular, who was going to be speaking on the Hill about um, wanting to try to reform cannabis. And I, you know, 
granted, I was 16. So I was like not totally present in the room half the time. But of the bits that I do remember, she had uh, severe health problems, uh, eating disorder, and she found that taking cannabis uh, helped her to, basically it helped her to eat. And this, she was, it was very clear that she needed some serious medical intervention. And she found that this was a very useful and I guess from her perspective, safe way in order to help her through her problems. So we ran a mock trial before she actually went to Senate to, um, you know, students kind of voting for or against. And interestingly, late 90s, I think we voted for cannabis reform, but when she went to the Senate, they voted against it. And I always wondered what happened to that woman because she, you know, she's doing this, you know, sort of mock trial being a participant amongst a bunch of 16, 17 year olds. And she could, you could tell she was nervous. And you think how much more intimidating must it have been as a, as a solitary person going before, you know, the big guys, right? With basically wanting to find ways in order to extend her life and then being told that it's, it's not going to happen. And then it gets into this whole idea of, you know, stuff happening under the table. And obviously the work that you do wants to try to prevent stuff from happening underneath the table, which I suppose leads us to uh, one of our first questions, which is how you became interested in the idea of creating a cannabis law practice. Well, and that's, uh, it, it follows on what I saw. And, I, you know, I wish I, I knew um, this lady, I should have looked up the history there. I could have maybe found out, but um, the timing is very interesting because it, it was 1996 when California passed its medical marijuana. And initiative. she was from California. I do remember that. Yeah. So um, in the history of the law in California, we is pretty murky um, in that I don't really know how everything worked there. And that was one of our questions as cannabis legalization started to sweep different states when I was working in the Senate and we started grappling with this. There's a lot of issues this brings up because in the United States, we have a dual sovereign um, system of government. You are under the sovereign of the state you live in and you are under the sovereignty of the United States. And you have to abide by both sets of rules when they come in conflict, the United States, the federal sovereignty um, takes over. That being said, it doesn't mean that everybody always follows the same set of rules. And as you saw in these states where cannabis became legal, and is legal now under state law, it is still illegal under federal law. Which I think is mind-blowing, I think, for a lot of people that you basically have 50 smaller, I guess you could say, state legislations, and then you've got an an overarching umbrella legislation, and they can be in complete contradiction with each other. That's right. And, And in most cases, the federal government, or I should say in many cases, the federal government is pretty aggressive about um, going after contrary state legislation, contrary state uh, laws, and, and making sure that they are invalidated. That being said, in this area, um, it's been a, for the most part, a live and let live system, but having illegality at the federal level has created real problems for an industry that uh, is attracting a lot of capital, a lot of um, investment. And that investment, for the most part, it, it can be considered illegal. Um, well, and, but and If I may, not to cut you off, but when we're talking about a lot of investment, we're talking at least $12 billion, aren't we? I mean, this yeah, isn't just industry, Trump change. The industry, the, the uh, estimates for the industry vary. But 
it's, it looks like the industry turned about 10 to 12 billion in 2019 of actual recorded legal sales. There's estimates that the illicit market nationwide uh, ranges in the 30 to $40 billion uh, range. Uh, there are estimates that the legal market, well, when I say legal, I mean state legalized, because as I explained, it's still illegal under federal law. The state legalized market uh, it will range in the 20 to 30 billion range by 2025. Uh, so it, it, is a, it is a massive market. It is a very large market. And that's just one part of the market. The market is very um, uh, diverse. So the plant cannabis is broken or has now been broken by law into two different um, types of industries. One is the hemp industry, which is uh, the plant cannabis with basically no THC in it. THC it's is a, a CBD oil yeah. that people use for, you know, spa treatments and medical reasons and that sort of thing. Is that correct? Right. Right. And well, and the CBD can come from marijuana or it can come from hemp. It depends on where it's derived from originally. If the plant it's derived from has a THC content of less than 0.3%, then it's hemp. If it has a THC content of above 0.3%, it's marijuana. And um, this brings up an interesting complication in federal law too. So while um, the center I work for, Senator Merkley, was leading on cannabis uh, or marijuana reform, he was also leading on hemp reform. He actually um, wrote with Senator McConnell, the majority leader from Kentucky, uh, a provision in the 2014 Farm Bill that allowed hemp production legally for the first time in the U.S. in some time uh, to begin by writing in that definition of hemp, that it, it can be the same marijuana plant as long as it has negligible amounts of THC. And that was followed in 2018 uh, by another amendment to the Farm Bill, which essentially made it permanent and expanded that definition quite a bit to include any product made from so at this point, your CBD in the United States, if it comes from hemp, is generally legal, although, uh, again, under federal law, it may not be legal to add it to a food uh, or any other kind of product because the Federal Drug Administration has primary regulatory authority over food. And so I'm getting way into the weeds. So you got to yeah, stop. Yeah, that's me. okay. I, I think we're going to stop right here because yeah. this is obviously, you know, from what you're talking about, this is this is this is quite in depth, and there's a lot more to it than I think people really recognize. So I guess what I'd like to sort of unpick first before we get into the ins and outs of why cannabis law is so confusing is why you think the cannabis industry needs a law practice. Well, so it exists now. When, when I left the Senate in 2017, um, you know, I was, I loved being a foreign policy advisor to the U.S. Senator. That was kind of a dream job for me. It was something that uh, I wanted to continue doing, but uh, I also had the pressures of, of, a, of a soon-to-be family, soon-to-be housing. So I knew I had to go back into the legal practice. And what I saw from leading this, uh, being one of the leaders on the Hill of this emerging industry is how there was a dearth of, of lawyers generally and practicing within the industry because there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of concern about whether you were giving legal advice for an illegal activity and could lose your bar license. A lot of state bars had not yet uh, passed uh, specific uh, rules saying, no, it's okay if it's okay under state law. 
And so what you saw is a hodgepodge of, you know, a couple really good lawyers and a lot of what used to be really criminal law people who knew the cannabis growers and all of a sudden were getting asked business law questions and other questions and may not have the background. And as you saw finance come into this arena, uh, the financial regulations in the United States are, are quite complex. Um, I am not a finance attorney, but um, you know, I know plenty. And, and part of the idea of coming out and working in this industry was, was being both a lobbyist for the industry and a lawyer for the industry because they needed quality people. Since 2017, um, the practice has grown so much in so many firms that um, it's actually now one of the areas that uh, various reporting in the, the uh, American legal sector, the AM law, which is a very um, prominent uh, listing, actually lists people in cannabis law. So it, 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 in three years, it has just exploded. So, so that's interesting because, um, you know, back to what you said earlier, you said that sort of the older generation, I'm guessing, you know, before the 1960s, are quite uncomfortable with this idea of air quote endorsing or promoting or supporting, however you want to look at it, the cannabis industry. And I apologize in the back, my dog is barking his head off because the mailman is here. So if you hear that, um, well, just going to have to keep listening. But um, I just want to know what sort of responses have you received either from younger or older generations, more so the older generation, when suggesting the possibility of opening up a cannabis law practice? Has it been positive, negative, mixed? Uh, it's been it's been generally negative, actually. So um, when I left, I, I went to a law firm with um, the partners I had worked for before at another firm, and I pitched this to them because I thought, and I didn't think, I knew there was so much business in this area, and we were well positioned, given my experience, to do it. And I was met with a tremendous amount of skepticism. Basically, I was told, you know, you can go off and kind of look for business in this area, but don't expect any support from the firm and we may not accept it because of complications. Um, even my firm now, which is one of the largest firms in the United States, um, doesn't officially have a, a cannabis practice, although we do take on some clients um, that are uh, what we call ancillary to the industry, you know, banks and other um, financial institutions that provide services to the industry, but we generally don't take um, uh, take on cases or, or issues that what we call touch the plant, where it's a direct grower or seller of the product uh, because of concerns about the overall federal legality of that. So if we could just, you know, extend that a bit further, um, I guess what I would like to know is if, if you have a practice, obviously you would have several people working within your practice. Are you concerned at all that the lawyers involved in your practice, yourself included, might be negatively labeled within uh, either the Mer American Bar Association or what have you? So this is funny. I am actually the vice chair of the American Bar Association's Cannabis Law and Policy Practice. Um, and what we have found is, no, there, there, the stigma is generally not there. There is a great amount of skepticism in some parts of the in some parts of the legal industry, about the the practice of, of law in this area, and again, it is general legal practice. It just happens to deal with an industry um, that is emerging, that is new, that has legal issues. And what are lawyers for if not to work through those legal issues? Um, so, 
I have seen in the last three years a sea change, even amongst lawyers, in the way they approach and think about practicing in this industry. Uh, and in fact, last year, as part of my role of the American Bar Association, we passed a measure um, in the House of Delegates for the American Bar Association to lobby Congress to ensure that lawyers cannot be prosecuted if they practice uh, persistent, uh, con consistent with state law uh, in this industry. And so uh, that was overwhelmingly approved. I think we had one dissenting voice. And from what I understood, that one gentleman dissents on everything. So it, we, we, it, was, it was really passed by acclamation and there was no pushback whatsoever from anybody. It was quite surprising, frankly, going through the process that nobody pushed back. And in fact, we had many co-sponsors from many other parts uh, of the ABA. So, because from what I've read, it seems like there are quite a few red states. And for those that are not um, American, uh, red is basically more from the conservative end. Um, in the UK, it's actually reversed if you're red, but that's another story. Anyway, um, those that are from the red states tend to be, in fact, um, more inclined to support the idea of, you know, kind of regulating or, or I should say, um, some reform with regards to the cannabis industry, which I thought was interesting because like you said, in the 90s, that would have not at all been the case, I don't think. And so I wonder with this industry that you're, you know, so I should say this practice that you're creating, do you think there's a role that you would be able to play in terms of kind of being the middleman in dealing with the various opinions in America surrounding cannabis production? It, that's harder to say than, but I want to come back to your main point that this is one of the rare bipartisan issues. It has been shocking. Oklahoma, which is one of the reddest of red states, voted for Donald Trump, I think, by 20 points in the last election, has legal medical cannabis. It wow. is legal. They have voted in that state to legalize medical cannabis, which my home state of Texas, which is a red state but much less red than Oklahoma, still is inching towards and hasn't even come close to doing. Um, Virginia, your home state, which is now a blue state for the most part. Which is weird, right? That was weird. Yes. I mean, you know, hey, great. But when I was growing up, absolutely not. Mm -mm. Yeah. Well, and, and if you, once you get out of the Washington, D.C. metro area. Then it gets a little York. bit pinker. Yeah, it gets, <laughs> definitely <laughs> changes colors. <laughs> yes, very quickly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's absolutely fascinating because really there, you know, and I came to this and I came... Yeah, I have been thinking about drug reform for a long time, um, right? I, the war on drugs to me always seemed um, unjust in the way it was prosecuted. And I think uh, many of the things happening today in the United States vis-a-vis uh, -vis the African-American community uh, is partly an outgrowth of the way the war on drugs has been prosecuted in this country and the uh, way it has morphed criminal law. If you look at criminal law, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, that was the, the time of great reform where people, uh, the Supreme Court was very reform-minded. Um, a lot of what we think now of, of Fourth Amendment rights, you know, the right against search and seizure and the actual case law that protects you came out of that era. But with the war on drugs, that really turned backwards and it has been whittled away and whittled away. Um, and so, you know, growing up, I, I always thought that was just something that was unjust. It didn't make sense to me that you put people in prison who um, are generally nonviolent, especially when it comes to marijuana, uh, and, uh, you know, are just being thrown in jail for possessing something. Um, 
And so that message became a very libertarian message um, and was in some ways adopted by some of the conservatives. So, for example, Rand Paul, who's a senator from Kentucky, um, the son of Ron Paul, a famous libertarian, he's a Republican, but he has championed this. And a lot of his colleagues have signed, not a lot, but some of his colleagues have signed on. Um, and in fact, I, I credit a lot of the libertarian Republicans with dragging some you know, more conservative Democrats that were scared to get out on a limb uh, into this area. And well, so, uh, yeah, I mean, not, I was to say not to cut you off. I mean, I think that that is really quite profound. And, and for those that aren't from the U.S. that didn't grow up in this culture, you know, the 90s was, you know, this idea of, you know, trying to defeat the drug lords. I mean, it'd been going on for a while, you know, with the mafia and then progressing on into the gangs, et cetera. And then 2001 happens. And then suddenly the U.S. did a complete role, you know, complete switch. And I went from, you know, trying to fight drugs to trying to fight terrorism. And I don't know if people are fully aware that this drug thing was beaten into us as kids who, you know, were growing up in the 80s and 90s. Don't do drugs was the message. And I remember the message that was fed to me was that marijuana was a gateway drug. And right. that was, you know, I can remember that so clearly, this idea that, you know, it's, it just starts with pot and then it moves on to heroin. <laughs> it's like, that was like right. the job. And I just assumed like, oh my gosh, why would you ever do heroin? And so there was, um, there wasn't the education, I don't think, that I, that I think people are trying to push towards, especially within the medical industry, that, you know, if we have issues with the production of marijuana, wouldn't it make sense to at least understand why? Um, if you can provide coding to individuals who are ill and that is comes from you know an opiate plant, you know we need to understand what are the pros and the cons, the benefits, the side effects, et cetera, before we just start assume, assuming things right, left, and center, right? That's right. Um, and, and, yeah, go on. On so much of that, and I wanted to touch on that because talking about marijuana law, one of the strange things of the way we have designed our federal marijuana regulations is marijuana is what's considered a schedule one drug. That means it has no medical purpose and a high uh, probability of abuse. Now, heroin and cocaine are schedule two drugs because they have medical uses. And in fact, the opiate problem we have today in the United States comes from medical versions of those drugs for the most part. Yet the enforcement and the penalties uh, are generally stronger for marijuana. And again, this is part of the incongruity and the just lack of sense of federal policy um, surrounding this industry that I think led many people to question it and to push back. And it has led over 20, 30 years to a real grassroots movement that has now sprung into a major uh, multi-billion dollar industry. So that, this is fascinating. This is where it gets a bit juicy because um, I read an article that you had sent me and then one by a colleague of yours, Stephen Cash. And uh, it was just my mind, I think, just exploded because there was just so much I didn't know. And then there's so much more I want to know. And one of the things that had come up um, that we'd had in correspondence was that marijuana is illegal under U.S. federal law, but legal under some state laws. And uh, as you and I both know, 33 U.S. states have legalized marijuana to some degree, whether it be for medical reasons, recreational and medical reasons. And um, you can always, you know, just tell us a bit more about that in a second. But one thing that really struck me is the article by Stephen Cash, which will be in the show notes. He states that when it comes to growing cannabis, 
legal, he puts in quotes, is a relative term as marijuana is still illegal in America under federal law, which supersedes contrary state and local laws. This means that those acting legally in states like Colorado, Connecticut, or California are likely unindicted felons. Felons, that's a big word. And I just want to know, how, how is that possible? You know, if you're using so, it as an ointment on your wrist, are you a felon? Right. So I love Stephen Cash. He's a former prosecutor, a very good friend of mine. I think that statement is overbroad in general. Okay. That being said, um, let's narrow it to the people that are growing or selling mass quantities of marijuana. Or if you're an individual and you decide to buy, um, you know, or, or let's say in, in some states you can grow your own. So you're growing amount and you have kept it and now you have a kilo or more of marijuana. Um, uh, generally, you could be indicted um, by, uh, under federal law for being a, um, essentially a, a drug kingpin. I mean, maybe not a kingpin is too big a word, but a drug distributor. That being said, the federal government has essentially called uncle and agreed that like, look, we, we we're not going to go after people that are doing this. There's very little enforcement of federal laws around, um, state legalized marijuana. When people are acting consistent with state law, um, they are not going to prosecute. In fact, um, one of the bills passed by the United States Senate, one of those appropriations writers I talked about earlier, prevents the federal government from prosecuting anybody acting consistently with state medical marijuana laws. It doesn't cover recreational marijuana, but if you are a actor in a state, you are a big grower and distributor that could be sent to jail under federal law for the rest of your life because of the quantities of marijuana you're selling. You are still technically breaking federal law, but you cannot be prosecuted because Congress had said you can't prosecute these people. So it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic where the law is clear on the one hand, but nobody can enforce it. <laughs> So this gets into some other interesting stuff because as you'd mentioned, you said that a, a lot of lawyers don't want to touch this industry with a 10-foot pole, including the banks. And we'll get into the banks in a second. Um, but when Stephen Cash was talking about you know, being labeled essentially as an unindicted felon, this could also include um, the lawyers who are helping somebody in the cannabis industry, receiving money for that help or aiding and abetting what he calls a federal crime. Now, you had mentioned that there have been some adjustments to the law and that um, I guess there's like a, I wouldn't say a waiver, but if it's legal by state law, then the federal law doesn't necessarily need to prosecute you. But is there a chance that they might? There's always a chance. Uh, that, that doesn't go away. And certainly if you're working with recreational marijuana, that's certainly true. Um, you, you know, as a lawyer, take an oath to uphold the law. And part of your membership in, in your state's bar says you cannot help other people break the law. You can tell them what the law is, but you cannot actively help them break the law. And, and for a lot of lawyers who, in particular, um, help the direct marijuana sales, direct marijuana growing industry, you know, arguably you are helping people break federal law. And you could be prosecuted for that. You could also lose your bar license. Now, a lot of states, they've amended their bar rules to say, if you're not, um, if you're practicing within state law, you're, you're not going to lose your license. 
um, and you're certainly not going to be prosecuted. That doesn't mean that the feds can't come in and do something. The, the issue has been that um, as we've seen this industry grow, the federal government has not only not done anything, they've put in place memoranda within the Justice Department and then, of course, the appropriations writers that basically say, if you're acting within state law, we're not going to mess with you. That doesn't mean that, you know, the more cautious among us, and lawyers tend to be cautious and small-c conservative by nature, um, still don't want to touch that industry. Um, now, many lawyers do, and you've seen it, it has sprung an opportunity for um, uh, younger lawyers, younger law firms to go and grow, um, no pun intended, uh, grow with this industry while a lot of the big boys have really um, sidestepped it. Now, you're seeing some changes in that. You now have, you know, 900,000 person law firms, some of the biggest names in the country, starting to step into that industry and starting to um, make their name in it, but still they're very tepid. And the types of engagements they will take, just like our industry, um, I'm, I'm sorry, just like my firm, uh, it, it is still um, constrained by certain internal rules. Interesting. Um, gosh, that, and I've got to imagine, you know, for those, especially those newer in law, you know, I might imagine it's anything like, you know, within academia as well. Um, you don't want to get typecasted, right? So it, I would right. imagine um, from a professional standpoint, you want to have enough credentials behind you to say, you know, yes, I'm, I'm going to start my own practice. But look, I've also done all these other things as well. You know, I'm not just jumping straight in for the uh, material that might, might, people might question, but that I also have a, a very substantial record behind me to support me. And I would imagine that would be helpful for what you want to do. Oh, certainly. And, and, you know, I, my practice in this area is, is um, mostly been in the advisory area because of my time in Congress. Um, my, day, my day job is as a litigator. Um, and, and that's what I continue to do. And certainly if there are cases in this area, I'm happy to take them on. Um, but you're absolutely right in general, especially the larger um, and more established, more conservative uh, legal practices and areas of law. Um, make those exact judgments and they don't like to, they'd like to typecast people. Um, and certainly, you know, there's some sense that I want to be typecasted because I want to be the person people come to when they have questions about this industry. Uh, but the fact is my legal experience is very broad and I just wanted to come back quickly to the question you asked earlier about, you know, how did I get into this or decide to do it? I actually turned down an opportunity to be an assistant United States attorney. That's a federal prosecutor. Um, and, and that was my trajectory. I, I'm not a drug user. I won't say I haven't smoked marijuana a couple times in my life, but I've never liked it. It's not something I do. I'm not, you know, I have friends that are practicing in an industry and are daily users because they love it. They know everything about it. And it's, it's like baseball or football to them. I mean, they, they literally, sure, sure. you know, and that, that's not where I come from. And that's also why I wanted to get into the industry as somebody who can step back and look at it from a different angle as somebody who was going to be, you know, wanted to be in uh, the national security ne uh, administration of the United States or in a uh, prosecutorial role to say, no, I want to support um, the legal growth and development of this industry so that it is done in the right way, in the right manner. And I want to be a voice 
um, that nobody's going to typecast as some kind of, uh, you know, crazy drug using lawyer that I'm, I'm the kind of guy that was almost the prosecutor, um, coming in and trying to make sure you're doing everything the right way. I think it's really good that you clarify that because I know even within, um, I mean, a lot of fields, there's, there are just some topics that are considered taboo. And right. even if society claims it's moving forward, a lot of times it's not moving fast enough. And I can remember even from my own experience, there was a, a topic that I wanted to explore. And I spoke to a professional who specialized in it. And I asked him, I said, you know, do you have any advice or, you know, were there any regrets that happened as a result of whatever it was he was studying? And he said that in focusing on this one particular topic, he not only did not get um, paid uh, a bonus for five years, but uh, it pushed his career back by 10 years. And he actually advised me, despite being one of the world specialists on this topic, not to do it. And that was a real shock to me. But I think within any profession, you can have an interest in it, but you have to have a plan. And it sounds to me like you obviously have a plan, but just going in guns blazing, you need to be able to defend yourself and, and explain, look, I'm like in your case, I'm taking the emotion out of it. I'm trying to understand it from a legal perspective because that's what I do. Which I think also leads me to this idea of working with the banks because the banks, just like many lawyers, they don't want to touch the industry with a 10-foot pole. And you had said in your article that the vast majority of the cannabis industry remains unbanked, operating completely in cash, and that this practice is inefficient and dangerous. Can you explain to me why they remained unbanked and why it could be potentially dangerous? Absolutely. So most banks in the United States... Uh, and credit unions are, as well are regulated by the federal government. They have to abide by federal law. Um, and, and just out of their nature, they are conservative institutions, small c conservative. You know, they're, they're risk adverse institutions. This industry is highly risky because uh, it is um, federally illegal. Um, and because of that, I think many banks have wisely seen that if they provide loans or even accounts to this industry, um, they, they are at risk of increased regulatory scrutiny. And that's something that banks generally don't want. Now, the Treasury Department came out in 2014 and said, okay, if you're a bank and you're working in this industry, we are going to require you to file a special type of report with the government that lets us know what you're doing. Um, that is burdensome, but it has allowed some banks and some credit unions, um, about uh, 5% of those in the United States, to work in this industry. Now, the costs are generally very high to open account. If you're you know, a normal business, you don't have to pay an extraordinary amount of money to have a bank account. Um, I have heard of bank accounts for the cannabis industry costing $3,000 a month just to have banking and finance. Um, and finance is a different issue. Again, lenders uh, are concerned that because this is illegal under federal law, they could have increased scrutiny. And then there is also concern, there's case law out there where um, contracts are invalidated because you cannot have a contract to do something illegal. Um, and so, you know, technically, um, some courts have seen that this is a contract to do something illegal if you're supporting the growing or sales of marijuana. So because there's so much uncertainty, banks have really not stepped into this field 
Um, no major bank that I know of is in this field. Um, and the banking industry that is in this field exists mostly in Canada, where it has been legalized nationwide. But in the United States, um, the vast majority of this industry still remains unbanked. Uh, it, it, it does not have access to traditional finance. It pays enormous interest rates for the finance it gets from private actors. Um, and this has led to a lot of transactions being done in cash, um, which leads to a lot of cash needing to be moved. Um, and people, and the industry has to pay their taxes in cash, which is well, just crazy. And you had said that people are having to put their money in like Santa sacks full of, of yep. cash. So that automatically you've got an industry of people really trying not to look like bad guys, trying to do the right thing. And instead they look like burglars <laughs> carrying Santa sacks full of cash because the banks won't accept checks. Literally. So, I mean, Senator Merkley went to the state treasury in Oregon with a cannabis dispensary to give them $70,000 in cash to highlight how difficult it is for them to just comply with normal law. They're, they're, that's crazy. Um, yeah, totally nuts. And if you work for the industry, you have to be paid in cash. Um, there's plenty of uh, data out there about, uh, you know, just somebody that works in dispensary losing their bank account because all of a sudden they're depositing all this cash. And when they tell their bank, oh, I worked at such and such place, that's why I'm depositing so much cash, their accounts are closed because the bank does not want to touch um, a federally illegal industry. Wow. So then getting back to what you're looking into establishing, what role could you play in order to make it easier for those within the industry to, to actually be able to, God forbid, open a bank account? <laughs> so we've been pushing, uh, because of my involvement uh, when I was working in the Senate with the Safe Banking Act, uh, we have been pushing for clients. Uh, I have been pushing as part of my role with the ABA. And we continue to push um, for any clients that are willing to, uh, to join uh, for Congress to pass uh, banking reform, marijuana banking reform, or other reforms that would open up the banking and finance system to the marijuana industry. The House actually passed as part of its um, response to uh, the current crisis, the current COVID crisis, um, marijuana banking reform. Uh, the Senate has not taken up that bill, and I am unfortunately... Uh, not confident the Senate will pass that uh, for the election, uh, not with that rider at least. So we'll see what happens, but this is an ever-evolving industry, and I want to use my legal and policy skills, my experience, to help this industry grow and grow appropriately. Well, I think, I think this is a topic you talk about for hours, but I guess if we could just sort of wrap this up in a roundabout sort of way, how do you, what trajectory do you see this industry going in in the next five years, if at all possible? As you said, depending on the writer who ends up winning the election. Right. So I think within a five-year period, you will see um, a sea change in federal cannabis policy. You may not see complete legalization at the federal level, uh, but I, I am confident just with the changing nature of what is happening in Washington, uh, regardless of who wins this election or the next election, um, I think you will see a system come about on the federal level that will allow states to essentially do what they want to do in this industry and make it something akin to alcohol and the way alcohol is regulated, where you have some federal supervisory oversight regulation, but for the 
most part, it tends to be a state and local uh, regular. It tends to be regulated on the state and local level. And this industry is growing. There's no question. It's it's now legal in more than half the United States. It's going to be. It already is a ten plus billion dollar industry. It will probably be a thirty plus billion dollar industry in the next ten years, maybe even larger than that. Um, there is uh, demand for this product. Um, there is uh, uh, people willing to meet that demand, um, and that's not going away. So. Um, what I think we're going to see is a tremendous, a, a whole infrastructure of state and federal regulation to be built around this industry that will ultimately make it an industry similar to alcohol, um, where it is uh, legal, generally legal nationwide, and you can get it anywhere. Now, we'll see if that happens, but that's, that's, what, that's what I think the next five years looks like. Well. Wow. That sounds like it's. We got a lot. We got a lot to look forward to. I'm not. I'm not even gonna lie. It's. It's gonna be interesting. I might be sitting here biting my nails, seeing not just what happens here, but what happens come November. So come hell or high water. Yeah, I think we're all biting our nails. About yeah, November, I think. But, I yeah. think we are. Well, at any rate, that's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Ann Wand. I'd like to thank again my old classmate. Adrian Sneed for joining us at the studio this afternoon. Additional information on cannabis law in America will be available in the show notes. In the meantime, we'd like to thank Nahima for becoming the show's new Coffee and Cocktails official Patreon supporter. For those of you who've enjoyed the show, please feel free to support our podcast by becoming a patron. Where for as little as one pound per month, you can get early access to episodes as well as live video and audio streams of the show, access to workshops, and much, much more. With a little bit of financial support, you can help our team to get paid to do what we love so we can continue to produce more episodes. You can also subscribe to our podcast by exploring our Facebook page and blog. In fact, tell your friends. Let them know how much you enjoyed the show and feel free to leave a comment. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter where you can learn more about upcoming shows. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week.